Guardian Unlimited. Chancellor of the Exchequer. This is uh, my tenth, and Mr. Speaker, and Mr. Speaker, my latest pre-budget report. And under this government, the tenth consecutive year of economic growth. And I can report not only the longest period of sustained growth in our history, but of all the major economies, America, France, Germany and Japan, Britain has enjoyed the longest post-war period of continuous and sustained growth. And the Treasury forecast is that growth sustained under this government for a record 38 quarters will continue into its 39th and 40th quarters and beyond. Now, ten years ago, Britain was seventh out of seven in the G7, bottom of the G7 league for national income per head. In the last two years, Britain has been second only to the United States. And in no other decade has Britain's personal wealth, and in no other decade has Britain's personal wealth, up 60% since 1997, grown so fast. And this pre-budget report drives forward the great economic mission of our time to meet the global challenge, to unleash the potential of all British people so that the British economy outperforms our competitors and delivers security, prosperity and fairness to all. Now, let me report growth in quarter one of 0.7%, in quarter two of 0.7% and in quarter three, 0.7%. The forecast for 2006 was annual growth of between 2% and 2.5%. And I can report that growth this year will surpass that figure. It is expected to be 2 and 3 quarters percent, and it will rise to between 2 and 3 quarter and 3 and a quarter percent next year. Business investment, business investment, business investment is up 5 and 3 quarters percent, exports are up 6%, and investment overall is up 6%. And despite contending with global imbalances, exchange rate uncertainties, stalled trade talks and, of course, high commodity prices, Britain's investment-led and export-led growth is forecast to continue in 2007, investment and exports forecast to rise by 5% or more. And by mid-2007, we expect inflation to be at its 2% target and remain at target in 2008. Now, Britain uniquely continues to combine recession-free growth with the longest period, a decade, of simultaneous employment growth and productivity growth. Productivity, productivity, which, productivity which in the last economic cycle up to 1997 grew by 1.9 per cent, is averaging since 1997 2.4 per cent. And from 1997 to, and including this year, our productivity per worker has moved 3% ahead of Germany, 11% ahead of Japan, we have half the gap with France, and we are the only G7 country to narrow the gap with the United States. And as productivity continues to rise, this year alone there are 200,000 more men and women in employment. There are now 2.5 million... There are now 2.5... It's a done thing to let a minister make the statement to the House and not to interrupt in this way. In contrast to three million unemployed under the last government, there are now two and a half million more jobs in Britain. The highest number of men and women in work in our country and employment higher since 1997 
in every region and nation of the United Kingdom. The Secretary for Work is today strengthening the New Deal with further measures to bring lone parents and the unemployed into jobs, but already there is a higher proportion of the working age population in employment in Britain than in America, Japan, Germany, France or the whole of the Euro area. I can report also that the number of people with tax-free savings accounts, ISAs, is now exceeding 16 million people, in contrast to just 9 million under the old system of Tessas and PEPs, and I can confirm that the tax-free advantages of individual savings accounts will continue beyond 2010 and they will be made permanent. In line with independent forecasters, we have decided to maintain trend growth at 2.75%, while basing our public finances, audited by the NEO as cautious and reasonable, on a rate of 2.5%. Mr Speaker, as I will show when I give all the fiscal figures in detail, Britain will meet both its fiscal rules and meet them in this economic cycle and the next. So we build, so we build, so we build for the future from the fundamentals of a recession-free decade of stability and growth with low inflation and this is the strongest foundation from which to address the great challenges ahead. Now let me summarise. Asia is already outproducing Europe. China alone is manufacturing half the world's computers, half the world's clothes, more than half the world's digital electronics, and this Christmas, more than 75% of children's toys. But in the next 10 years, the competitive challenge is even more profound. Once responsible for just one-eighth of the world's growth, China and India will soon capture almost half. And increasingly, they are competing not just on low cost, but on high skills. Every year, Britain is adding 75,000 engineers and computer scientists, but India and China are adding half a million. Annually, Britain turns out a quarter of a million graduates, India and China, four millions. So economies like ours have no choice but to out-innovate and outperform competitors by the excellence of our science and education, the quality of infrastructure and environment, and by our flexibility as an economy and our levels of creativity and entrepreneurship. And just as in the last decade, Mr. Speaker, by planning long-term, we created a new and enduring British framework for long-term economic stability, the task is to think long-term again for the coming decade and to create a new British framework for innovation and investment a British strategy to make the next stage of globalisation work for the British people. Yeah. Now, a share finding of each of the reviews we have published in the last few days is that the investments that Britain must make can only be achieved in a new era of shared, a new era of shared responsibility and of long-term partnerships between public and private sector. And if the focus of our first decade was to replace or repair old hospitals, old schools and old housing, that is the catch-up investment we had to do. The new priority is world-leading investments that will move Britain sustainably ahead of our competitors, the road and rail networks, the affordable housing, the advanced medicine and science, and the schools and colleges of the future. And we in Britain now have a long-term choice to make, whether to commit to the essential investments and reforms that these reports recommend. Now, first, science and innovation. 25 years ago, the market value of our top companies was no more than the value of the physical assets. Today, the market value of Britain's top companies is five times the physical assets, demonstrating the economic power of knowledge, of ideas, and of innovation. 
And the next challenge for Britain is to match strength and basic research with success all round in transforming knowledge into successful products and new jobs. So having consulted on the way forward for university research in the UK, we are today detailing a new system for assessment and funding. And as a first step, universities will have access to 60 million a year directed to applied research with commercial potential. And we are determined that Britain be a world-class location for future medical research, including stem cells. So that Britain leads the world in developing new treatments and drugs, we are going to bring together the research capability of our universities, institutes, pharmaceutical companies, and the unique resources of the research facilities of the NHS. And I can confirm with a pooled budget of over a billions a year, a new fast-track procedure for priority research, the President of the Academy of Medical Sciences, Professor John Bell, will lead this new drive to identify for Britain the most useful and fruitful areas for potential medical breakthroughs. Yeah. And British science can also do more to eradicate poverty and disease around the world. So today also the International Development Secretary is establishing a new partnership, research councils and charities, including the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation, so that we can maximise the contribution of British inventors, scientists and researchers to the urgent global task of attacking poverty. It's because the future success of our creative and knowledge-based industries depends also on Britain having a robust intellectual property regime. The Secretary for Industry is announcing today he will tighten the penalties for copying and piracy while giving individuals new rights for personal use. And he will introduce a new fast-track protection for small companies to safeguard their trademarks. Since 1997, the number of films made in Britain has increased by 50%. And to encourage an even more vibrant British film industry, I'm confirming that January the 1st will be the date to introduce new film tax reliefs. I'm also addressing avoidance and the rules governing managed service companies. Now, Mr. Speaker, the best way to make globalisation work for the British people is to combine open markets, free trade and flexibility with investment in people and also fairness to people. The minimum wage is now £5.35 per hour. But to be effective, we must ensure British workers and good British companies are not undercut by illegal rates. So in January, we will raise the penalties for persistent illegality. And to raise the standards of enforcement, I'm announcing a 50% increase to nine millions in the budget to monitor and to police the minimum wage. In the last 10 years, over 1 million more adults have gained literacy and numeracy qualifications. The British workforce now has 3 million more men and women with skills. The Leach report says that instead of today's 6 million unskilled workers, the 2020 economy will only need half a million unskilled workers. Instead of 9 million high-skilled workers and graduates today, we will actually need 14 millions. So I want British workers to gain the skills for these higher paid jobs of the future. And our aim is by 2020, 90% of adults to reach at least the equivalent of five GCSEs, achieving in just over one decade what no country has managed until now, by reforming underperforming colleges, doubling from two to four million the number of adults achieving A-level equivalent skills, and ensuring our economy has five million more men and women 
with high-level professional and graduate skills. Our objective cannot be achieved either by government alone or by business alone. So the review assesses that after 2010, a new statutory entitlement to skills training may be required. But there is an urgent need to make progress now and by consensus. So the Secretary for Education is today appointing the former Director General of the CBI, Sir Digby Jones, to advance an agenda, employees taking more responsibility to train, employers taking more responsibility to time off, with in return more say over what training is provided, and the government taking more responsibility to reform and invest in training provision at work in colleges and online. To meet the skill needs of the future, we must also encourage young people who too often lose out to stay on, to study for qualifications and go to university and college. Around education maintenance allowances, we are introducing an Earn to Learn programme for people to gain graduate qualifications while still working part-time, new summer school universities along with work experience and coaching to motivate young people to stay on in education after 16, we are extending the support to 16 and 17 year olds who are not in education or employment to help them into training and help them into work. We will consult on £2,000 bursaries for looked after children to encourage them to go to university and also consult on a new path of entry to university in which students volunteer in return for a reduction in tuition fees. But to ensure every child and young person has the best start in life I thought there was common cause on this. We must also address the causes and roots of child poverty. Yeah. In April, child benefits paid to the poorest child, which were only £28 a week in 1997, will rise to £64 a week. Yeah. These tax credits are the main vehicle that has ensured that since 1997, two million children have been taken out of absolute poverty and almost a million children out of relative poverty. Now that the Healthy Start scheme offers half a million pregnant mothers and families with young children up to £5.60 a week extra for nutrition, it is time to do more. And I've received powerful representations that in the last months of pregnancy, when nutrition is most important, and in the first weeks after birth, the extra costs borne by parents could be better recognised if we did more to help through the universal benefit, child benefit, which is paid to all. Maternity grants are available to low-income mothers from the 29th week of pregnancy. Help should be available to all mothers expecting a child, so child benefit will be paid on that basis to every mother, additional child benefit that now recognises the important role at this critical moment that child benefit can play. Yeah. Now, we are also today publishing the interim report of the Third Sector Review, an action plan for third sector involvement in public services. We propose more stability in funding for the third sector, the voluntary community and charitable organisations upon which so many communities depend, and particularly small local organisations. So I can announce that in the spending review, the norm will not be one-year funding for third sector organisations, but offering them three-year funding. <laughs> community ownership of assets can provide local communities with a financial and social stake in their own areas, so we are also announcing a £30 million fund to encourage local authorities and the third sector to work together to expand community ownership of community assets. Reviews on children and disability, issues of social care and local regeneration will report next year. With, with 100,000 Olympic volunteers already, 
the Culture Secretary and Minister for the Third Sector will now consult on the next stage how young people can do more to volunteer in the run-up to the 2012 Olympics. Now, Mr Speaker, the same partnership of responsible individuals, companies and governments is vital to meeting the environmental challenge. I've said that we should use market mechanisms and incentives to work towards global carbon trading. Since the Stern Review, I can report that 31 countries in the EU and EFTA have now signed up to emissions trading as the first step to this global framework. And we are bringing together the major financial institutions because our aim is to meet, make London the world's leading centre for carbon trading. On the development of biofuels, Britain has now signed a partnership agreement with Brazil, Mozambique and South Africa. On the preservation of rainforests, we are working with Latin American and Asian countries. On clean coal with China and India. And today, Norway and Britain are together launching the first feasibility study for a new infrastructure for carbon capture and storage under the North Sea. And the Secretary for Industry will be appointing engineers ahead of a decision to be made next year on the first carbon capture demonstration plant for the United Kingdom. Yeah. It is time also to set a long-term framework for curbing the carbon emissions from houses, which are 30% of all emissions. Next week, the Secretary for Communities and the Housing Minister will set out plans to ensure that within 10 years, every new home will be a zero carbon home. And we will be the first country ever to make this commitment. And to accelerate the building of zero carbon homes, for a time-limited period, the vast majority of new zero carbon homes will be exempted from stamp duty. And for existing homes, I will consult on a new facility to undertake energy audits and offer low loans that would in time, because of low energy bills, pay for themselves. Through greater energy efficiency, our aim is to reduce emissions and to eliminate fuel poverty. In addition to the basic pension rising from next April by 3.6% and the winter allowance of £200 and £300 for the over 80s, the pension credit minimum guarantee will rise by £5 a week for a single person and £7.65 a week for couples. And with grants of £300 to £4,000 through the Warm Front programme, which I extended last year, we are providing not only insulation but free central heating for low-income pensioners and extra support towards central heating in all other pensioner households. By the end of 2008, we will have insulated an additional 2.7 million homes. But in the coming year, we will extend Warm Front and going community by community, we will make it possible for 300,000 pensioner and other households, the ones most vulnerable to fuel poverty, to have free insulation and free central heating. Now, I turn to the framework for transport, which is responsible for 30% of all carbon emissions. The aviation sector accounting for a fifth of these. Currently, aircraft emissions are not part of the EU emissions trading scheme, and nor is aviation fuel taxed. While we continue to work internationally to seek a global agreement on reducing aircraft emissions, each country must take action domestically. From February the 1st, we will double air passenger duty. For most journeys, over 75% of them, duty will rise from £5 to £10, securing extra resources in the coming spending round for our priorities such as public transport 
and the environment. A priority for vehicles, which is responsible for 25% of emissions, is to promote cleaner fuels through fiscal incentives. And I'm extending today the 20 pence per litre discount to include the next generation of biodiesel, a discount we will offer to all new innovative fuels as they develop. I'm also consulting prior to a budget decision on extending the current 40 pence per litre per duty discount for biogas and on the level of tax discounts for company cars that use high blend biofuels. I'm relieving small biofuel producers of requirements to register or submit returns, while I will go ahead now with an inflation rise in fuel duty from midnight tonight of 1.25 pence per litre, I will not restore the fuel duty escalator and I have rejected a real terms increase in fuel duty. I can also announce that to incentivise the use of cleaner fuels in trains in the same way we do for cars, the tax rate for piloting rebated fuels mixed with biofuels will now be reduced from 53 pence to just 8 pence. For greater energy efficiency in public procurement, we are publishing new guidelines to ensure that the 125 billions we invest each year is spent both well and in a sustainable way. And as a first step, we are piloting school designs that achieve a level of excellence in carbon reduction. Tackling climate change is an opportunity for Britain to create thousands of new jobs. Our new institute to investigate new environmental technologies will start with a budget of £550 million. And I can also confirm a second enterprise capital fund that will be focused on encouraging innovative green technologies. Now, the theme of both the Eddington Review on Transport and the Barker Review on Planning is that we must systematically modernise and improve Britain's road, rail, housing and civic infrastructure that was run down in the 70s, 80s and early 90s. And we must invest in a sustainable infrastructure that will contribute to the future prosperity of the country. Just as we made monetary policy independent of government, then financial services policy, then competition policy, and much of industry policy, it's time to adopt the same approach on planning. We will now consult on the proposal that in future, while ministers will set the policy guidelines, strategic decisions on location and planning permission for major infrastructure projects will be made outside of day-to-day -day political control and instead by an independent planning body. As we move, as we move forward our risk-based approach to local and national regulation, we are setting new incentives to cut the number of local authority inspections, and after consultation and support from business, we will now implement a new approach offering early rulings on business tax, time limits for decisions by the Inland Revenue, and a better approach to managing risk. And as we consult on and then implement the Barker and Eddington recommendations, we are today also designating new brownfield sites that will raise the number of new homes on surplus land to 130,000, and we are doubling within four years to 160,000 families who will be able to become homeowners for the first time through shared equity under our investments. Mr. Speaker, properly equipping ourselves for the economic and social challenges ahead requires a long-term commitment of new investment supporting reform and modernization. And our capacity to finance this modernization depends on the strength of our fiscal position, on our ability to release resources for priorities, and on the choices we as a country are prepared to make. Now, first, the fiscal position. I'm publishing today the document Britain's long-term public finances. Its detail shows that even after taking into account 
our new commitments on pensions, the country's public finances are on a sound and sustainable basis for the long term, and they are stronger than other countries. And before I give this year's, before I give this year's fiscal figures, I can confirm that to fund operations in Afghanistan, Iraq and other international obligations, the Secretary of Defence has been allocated an additional 600 million, and I want to pay tribute to our armed forces and security services for their contribution to the country. I can also announce an additional 84 million directed to intelligence and counter-terrorism. Our budget for security, which was just 1 billion in 2001, will now be for 2007-8 over 2 billion pounds. Now, our two fiscal rules for the economic cycle are the golden rule that current spending is paid for by tax revenues and the sustainable investment rule that with debt at a prudent level, we can invest in our education, the NHS infrastructure and other essential priorities. These rules are demanding and no other major economy, neither America nor Japan nor the euro area, meets these rules today. But I can report that even after the new commitments I'm announcing in this report, our current deficit falls from 15 billions to 8 and then to 1 billion, and then in successive years to 2011, we record surpluses of 4, 7, 10, and 14 billions. So, Mr. Speaker, with an overall, with an overall surplus in this economic cycle of 8 billions, we meet the golden rule and already are on course to meet the rule in the next cycle. This compares, this compares with the two economic cycles under the previous government. In the first economic cycle, the rule was missed by a margin of £140 billion. And in the cycle from 1986 to 1997, it was missed by £240 billion. The strength of our fiscal position is that over the economic cycle, the strength, of our, the strength of our fiscal position is that over the economic cycle, and for the first time for four decades, no borrowing is necessary to cover current spending. I turn to the second rule, the sustainable investment rule. It is a rule that has been especially challenging for Britain because we've had to catch up after decades of underinvestment in infrastructure. But even after doubling capital investment in education, transport and the NHS, we meet our second rule. Debt is 47% of national income in America. It's 55% in the euro area. It's 65% in the European Union as a whole. It's 90% in Japan, but it's 37.5% in the UK. And net debt levels will in future be 38.2%, 38.6% then 38.7 and 38.5. Total net borrowing, which under the last government went as high as 7.8% of GDP, the equivalent today of 100 billions of borrowing, will fall from 37 billions this year to 31, 27, and then in successive years from to 26, 24, and 22. So borrowing falls, borrowing falls from 2.3% of national income to by 2011, 1.3%. And with overall deficits and debt lower than our competitors, lower than in recent decades, Britain is meeting both our fiscal rules in this cycle and the next. And it is within this strong and sustainable fiscal position that we are well placed to make decisions and to meet our long-term priorities 
for public services and for investment. Now, to do so and get most resources to the front line, I'm requiring each department to re-examine each of their assets. I'm granting new powers to the Office of Government Commerce, including tighter rules on fees. I'm removing old financial barriers to the disposal of surplus government assets. And based on a register to be published in January, we will identify additional assets which can be sold. But already share sales, already share sales including Westinghouse and other assets, will raise this year and next an additional seven billions, and over the spending periods we will raise a further 30 billions from land and buildings. Following the Varney report, we can release 400 million by cutting government call centre operating costs by 25%. To free up resources for the front line, I can also confirm real terms reductions of 5% a year in the budgets of HMRC, DWP, Cabinet Office and Treasury, and 3.5% a year in the DCA. I can also announce that for the years to 2011, I have reached agreement with Secretaries of State for net efficiency savings in their overall budgets of 3% a year, cut their administration budgets by 5% a year. Taken together with the other measures, this releases by 2011 for our priorities, like education, the NHS, policing and security, an additional $26 billion a year. As recently as the mid-1990s, 75% of all new public spending went to debt interest and social security benefits, mainly to pay for unemployment. Today it is down to less than 20%. And the purpose of all these savings is to ensure frontline services will have the resources they need. So, Mr. Speaker, up against the global challenge and with fiscal rules that allow us to borrow for sustainable investment, we should not postpone, nor should we avoid, essential new investments this country must make in infrastructure and in education. Now, one choice for Britain would be to adopt a balanced budget policy. But to achieve that by cutting back on essential investment in schools and infrastructure would, in my view, weaken us for the global challenges ahead. I've also considered representations for a third fiscal rule. But this would require us to cut spending by 28 billion, 28 billion this year alone. 28 billion this year alone. This is a choice for Britain I reject because it, it would deny us investment in education, in health, in infrastructure, and in vital priorities, and it would leave Britain ill prepared and ill equipped for the future. Instead, Mr. Speaker, I can confirm that capital investment in education, which was only one and a half billions a year in 1997, will be 8.3 billions next year, and we will set out long-term plans for investment to rise even further. I can also confirm that investment in transport, just four billions in 1997, will be 9.6 billions next year, and in the spending review, we will set out an updated 10-year spending plan. Investment in housing, just two billions in 1997, will be nearly eight billions next year, with sustained investment through into the next spending round. But I can also announce the spending review for the years to 2011 will be based on planned capital investment in our country, in infrastructure, in education and vital priorities, rising from 39 billions last year to 60 billions in 2011. And let me give details of the investment we will make over the five years ahead. 
Next year, 48 billions. It will rise in 2008 to 51, then to 54, then to 57, and then to 60 billions, showing our commitment to modern roads and rail, modern schools and science, the new housing hospitals, and the, the renewal of communities. A change from the age of disinvestment under the previous government. Now, the single most important investment we can make is in education. And today, I can start implementing the recommendations that have been put to us on skills. In 1997, there were 80,000 apprentices. Today, in England alone, there are 250,000. And half of them are now in manufacturing, in construction, and technology. And I can announce in the years to 2020, the number of apprenticeships will rise to 500,000. I can also announce, under the Train to Gain, we'll increase the numbers of adults learning basic workplace skills from 100,000 this year to, by 2011, 350,000 a year, giving adults as well as young people the opportunity to better themselves. And it's even more important that the next generation do not lose out or fall behind on basic skills they will need to succeed in the global economy. So the Secretary for Education is also announcing today that the Every Child a Reader programme, which has already best results in literacy, will year by year be extended nationwide, all boys and girls who are already at the age of six falling behind in reading will be offered special catch-up tuition. And in secondary schools where the learning gap between boys and girls is greatest, there will be new funds for extra support for mentoring, small group tutoring and personalised learning. And since 2001, all children at the age of one, two and three receive books to encourage them to read. I can also announce today that all children starting primary school at five and then moving and as they move to secondary school at 11 will receive books free of charge, in total three million books going direct to children to lift the reading standards of young people in our country. Mr. Speaker, I've become convinced also that for Britain to rise to the global challenge, we should commit now to year-by-year -year improvements in investments in schools and educational establishments. And I think it's right now that we make a spending settlement right through to 2011 that covers all capital investment in education. Separate announcements will be made for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to ensure that all, all 21,000 schools and educational institutes are fit, institutions are fit for 21st century challenges. I can announce that educational investment in our schools, colleges and university buildings and facilities, which stood at just one and a half billions in 1997, will by 2010 be 10.2 billion for education alone. And the investments in education we will make are 8.3 billions next year, 8.6 in 2008, 9 billions in 2009, rising to 10 billions in 2010. In the next four years, a cumulative investment in education alone of 36 billions, matching by 2010 state school capital investment per pupil to private schools, as year by year we close the gap. Our goal, our goal is 12,000 new or completely refurbished schools, half of all primary schools, 90% of all secondary schools, benefiting 4 million children a year, in addition 100 colleges rebuilt serving a million students and in total 3,500 new children's centres built for nearly 3 million boys and girls in every constituency of the country. And every one of our constituencies is benefiting 
from the biggest programme of educational investment ever in support of our decision to prepare for the global economy as the most educated nation in the world. And for next year, I can go beyond the announcement I made in the budget on spending per pupil. In striking the right balance between tax, spending and borrowing, I'm able to meet both our fiscal rules and release additional resources for the coming year. I propose to increase the cash we give to every school and every head teacher to be used in the way that local schools think best. The typical primary school received £39,000 this year in direct payments. For April next year, I propose this be 50000 for every primary school. The typical secondary school received 150000 For April next year, I propose it be 200000 Mr Speaker, this is the equivalent of £200 for every pupil paid three months from now direct to the school. Money I could use for tax cuts, but I say invest in education first. Money that could not be invested if we had a third fiscal rule. Mr Speaker, stability is our foundation. Education our number one priority. Education first, now and into the future. And I commend this statement to the House. Guardian Unlimited.